and welcome to Speak a Dogcast. My name is David Farb, Animal Behavior Specialist, and I'm broadcasting from WOUF Studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you once again for joining me. If you haven't clicked that subscribe or follow button, go ahead and do so. I come out with new episodes every single Wednesday morning for you. You're going to want to check it out. And if you haven't followed me on social media, find me on Instagram, Speak a Dogcast, Facebook, Speak a Dogcast. You can always just check out that website, do speakadogcast.com. We have an awesome show lined up. The first segment today is going to be called Training a Dog. It's a family affair. Yeah, we're going to go into how and and uh, some of the details of training a dog with a family and different members of the family, how to get everybody on board and what goes into that. Then we're going to have our breed of the week. Then a segment called the importance of focus. Yes, I think something maybe everybody discounts a little and maybe doesn't spend enough time emphasizing is the focus in working with your dog. So we're going to talk more about that. Then, of course, we have our listener Q&A. And if you guys have any dog-related questions, training-related questions, you can email me, questions at speakadogcast.com. But before we get going, I have to give you that trivia question. And today's question is, which group of dogs were the first dogs registered to the AKC? Yes, what group of dogs were first registered to the AKC? And I'll give you that answer to today's trivia question somewhere in the show, so be sure you stick around, sit, stay, and enjoy. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's training a dog. It's a family affair. So what does that mean? You know, I think the easiest and and simplest way to put it is it takes a village, right? We all know that term, it takes a village. Yeah, it takes a village to train a dog. It takes a pack to train a dog, right? And you, as as, as family members, as people living in the household, you are a member of that dog's pack. And that's what that dog is just, that's what they're going to think. You're a part of their pack. So it takes a village. We can't just have some people in the household going, you know, I don't want to work with the dog. I'm not going to train the dog, so I'm just not going to do anything. We're not going to get you good results that way. Um, no, it doesn't work that way. The dog doesn't really understand that, hey, you don't want to interact with them, but somebody else does. They're going to try to interact with you at some point, right? The, the dog is going to come over to you and ask for affection or playtime or, or something. And I'm sure at some point living in that household, you're going to have to take that dog out. You're going to have to feed that dog. So it really, you, you can't play this game of, I don't want to interact and work with the dog or train the dog. You, you just can't. If the dog lives in the household, you're a part of it. You're a part of their pack, whether you like it or not. And you really need to be a participating member in it. You do. And I think you'll you'll find, you know, if you start participating in a healthy way, in a good way, in a way that's cohesive toward training and, and desired and good behaviors, you'll actually end up enjoying it. <laughs> Us dog people aren't that crazy. Uh, there's a reason we love dogs, because they're awesome. So, you know, it, it takes a village. That's the first thing we got to talk about. It takes a village. Um, I, I can't tell you how often I walk into households and I, you know, I mean, it's funny. First, first podcast, right? The very first episode I did of this podcast and sort of the catalyst that got, that, that got the podcast going was a story where I talked about a specific client and that family was anything but cohesive. That family was doing anything but being a village. They were being a terrible village where nobody got along and everybody hated each other. Um, <laughs> and, and that's what kind of was the catalyst to start my podcast because it's, it's, uh, it's not, thank goodness. It's not very often I walk into a scenario quite that 
ridiculous and 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 chaotic um <laughs> but it it's it's really that that proven point that if a family is not on the same page if people are not providing the same information and training and consistency to that dog then you're not going to get good results you're not going to train your dog you're not going to fix anything nothing's going to change because you're providing such inconsistency and misinformation to the dog uh, that it actually even that can almost even create or make behavior problems worse not almost it it can uh, it depends on the scenario and the situation but yeah that's that's the truth in it so it takes a village it takes everybody in the household on board um you know doing their part and their part doesn't have to be a three-hour commitment every day. Um, that's the cool thing is when it takes a village, it takes like a little bit here, a little bit there. If everybody's doing a little piece, that adds up to a much bigger puzzle, right? So that's the cool thing. Guys, if you have kids, you should be utilizing them. <laughs> you should be using them. Uh, they should be scooping poop. They should be taking the dogs for the for walks if, of course, the Children are old enough to handle that, and the dog is the right size, so we're doing it safely. Uh, but the kids should be walking the dogs. The kids should be working with the dogs on learning tricks, on on learning control over playtime. Uh, these are things you really should be using your children. You know, I, I, <laughs> they're there for more than just being cute and and taking care of when you get old. Um, <laughs> they can also be used to do chores, to work with your dogs. And honestly, that's the best way to do it. If everybody puts in five to 10 minutes a day of work with their dog, man, oh, if everybody did that, they would see such behavioral changes so quickly in their dogs. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest things I fight when I have families is getting everybody on board. The dog's the easy part, guys. The, 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 training the dog is the simple part. I'll be honest. It really is. The harder part is getting a family, getting five different people, five different ages, five different levels of, of energy and activities and things they're doing and schoolwork and extracurriculars and work. And it's very difficult to get five people on the same page. Anybody, <laughs> any mom and dads out there that run the show with their family, as they should, because they're the mom and dads, um, <laughs> you know how difficult it can be to create that consistency. And that's that's a tough thing, but a necessary thing, okay? So I, I really encourage it when people have um, a larger family. In a way, to me, it's, it's like, oh, this is great. I've got five different people to be able to do this because, hey, little Johnny has baseball practice three days a week, and then he's got to do his homework when he gets home. He's not going to be able to walk the dog Monday, Wednesday, Friday. But when you know it, little Cindy doesn't have anything Monday, Wednesday, Friday. She can go walk the dog. It takes a village. What an amazing difference you would see in your dog if everybody approached it like that, okay? Um, just really trying to make sure everybody's doing their part. And I encourage that even um, in, in, you know, in all my households. Everybody just do a little piece here, a little piece there. Now, side note, as I've talked about with teaching dogs, right, that's actually the best way a dog learns, smaller little pieces of concise information. So if everybody's just kind of approaching it from a, uh, hey, I can put in five to 10 minutes, two or three times a day with the dog or whatever the scheduling may be, you're actually offering little piece of information here, little piece of information there, little piece of information here, little piece of information, instead of going out there and trying to train your dog for two hours straight and force it. No, it actually kind of allows them to take in some info and then they get a break and they get to digest the info. And okay. so kind of something to think about there that it actually can be beneficial breaking it down like that, letting each member of your family do just a little bit of training each day. That can really work out. So uh, it takes a village to train a dog. It's a family affair. It really, really is. You can't just have one family member ignoring. You know, 
I'll, I'll hear a lot of times where someone will say, you know, sometimes it's just a logistical thing. Um, one, you know, the, maybe maybe we have a stay at home spouse, stay at home mom, and you know she's obviously going to be with the dog more than somebody who's working eight hour days, more than the kids who are at school for eight hours a day. So there usually is one person in the household that spends more time with the dog, right? And what I find is the dog will actually respond more, right, to the to the spouse or the person that isn't home as much. They like them better is what I hear. They go over to them. They could, And, you know, what's happening here is the, that, that, that spouse that's not home, when they come home, the last thing they want to do is provide the discipline for their dog. They just want to snuggle with them. They've been at work all day. They don't want to have to work. They don't want to have to do it. And they end up just giving the affection away for free. And then, unknowingly to the owners, the dog is starting to control affection time. I actually just had a consultation recently where this was the case. Uh, The dog is actually controlling affection with the person who's not there as much, who doesn't interact as much, who doesn't walk them, who doesn't do these things. And the dog is more controlling with that person. Now, the perspective on it is that the dog is, oh, he likes him more. Well, he likes him more because he can push him around. (laughs) Okay, so having that inconsistency in the training like that because they're giving two different pieces of information to this dog, it creates inconsistency in their training and and then in turn in their behavior. Okay, so something to think about is is we need to have everybody on the same page. It takes a village. It takes a village, right? And having buddy, having everybody on the same page really is just consistency. That all that, you know, think about it, that's all it is. It's just creating consistency. Um, you know, I kind of compare it like when I tell people, you know, when you ask your when you teach your dog, you're asking your dog for a sit. What's what's everybody do? They go sit, 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 sit. <laughs> you get like seven different ones. Uh, seven different tones, seven different sits. That's seven different versions of the word sit. And instead it should be, hey, sit. If I need to say it again later, sit, sit, sit. You hear the consistency in that? I try to be as consistent as I can with my tone because even something as simplistic as a tone, they pick up on. And that inconsistency in a tone can actually make it more difficult for your dog to learn because what you're telling them, what you're telling them there is two different pieces of information, well, seven different pieces of information if the tone is different every time versus a consistent sit, sit, okay? So consistency in general is key. So now let's let's compare that to having five family members that are each saying sit a different way or feeding a different way or letting them out of the crate a different way or walking out the front door a different way or doing the walk all together a different way. Can you imagine how confusing that's gonna be for a dog? So not only confusing, but then it's going to end up turning into frustration. And oftentimes that kind of inconsistent information for your dog turns to frustration and then can turn into behavioral issues, lashing out at other dogs, barking uncontrollably, um, all these different displacements that can come from this. So I can't stress it enough. Um, You have to have people that are in your household that are there a lot, that are exposed. Look, even if they don't live there. If you have a grown son or daughter that lives nearby and they're coming by a couple days a week and they interact with the dog quite a bit or they feed them when you're out of town or they take them out halfway through the day while you're at work or anybody, anybody who interacts with, look, I've had um, babysitters uh, at nannies. I've had um, dog walkers even when I didn't used to do dog walking up in Orlando. I actually had people, all these different 
um, people that are in, involved in people's lives and involved in the dog's life, they have to be a part of it too. Because if they're giving inconsistent information, well, here we are back again, right? <laughs> inconsistent information equals not great behavior. Pretty simple. So it takes a village. Once again, we go back to that. It takes consistency and it takes a village. It takes everybody being on board. Now, one of the other most common things I get is, you know, <laughs> one spouse doesn't want to be involved just just because whether they are too busy because they work or they they are out of it they don't need to be involved and unfortunately they are involved <laughs> whether they realize it or not they're involved and here's my question to the spouses that don't think they're involved do you pet the dog do you look at the dog <laughs> do you ever feed the dog do you ever take the dog out if you ever do any of those things, which I'm pretty sure you're going to look at that dog or pet that dog at some point, then guess what? You're interacting with that dog. You're a part of that dog's pack. You're a part of that dog's life. And even the way you give affection, as I've talked about before, okay, even the way you give affection is really important. And so if you're not doing it correctly, consistently, you can actually be hindering the training that maybe your spouse is trying to accomplish or, well, you know, significant other whoever's in the house, they're trying to train the dog. If you're working against them in that way, man, you're just, you're making their life more tough. And that's just, that stinks. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. So Everybody needs to be on board in the household. Um, they really do. We really make, we have to make sure everyone's playing their part in doing the role. Am I saying everyone needs to be taking the dog for an hour long walk every single day? Not necessarily. I mean, we have five people in the house. That would be five hours of walking a day. We don't, we don't need that. Again, everybody can do their part and play their role as long as they're doing it correctly. As long as they're, they're doing it in a way that's cohesive toward training and reinforcing and strengthening those desired behaviors. Okay. And again, this is why when I go in to train people and train, work with people and their dogs, um, I, I need the family there. I need everybody in the household there for at least the first or second session so we can get everybody on the same page, so I can get some information across to them. So we're all working with the same material here. Okay. So think about that. Again, if everybody just commits a little bit, it adds up to a lot. Um, I'll be honest. I, I see the, di the difference is, is stark. It's, it's vast, vastly different results, vastly different results in a household where everybody's on board and everybody's not. Okay. But you know, you, you, you start to see the patterns enough. You start to do this enough that you can recognize when I have clients that are not going to be committed or the other side of it. I recognize, I can also recognize when I have clients who are going to be committed, who are all in and man to those clients. I got, you know, I have to, I have to give a little bit of a shout out. I mean, hey, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll avoid names and dog breeds, but uh, my client out there, I know she's listening. Um, she really has done a phenomenal job so far. And we're, we're early in the training after return of a boot camp somewhat recently. Um, and really, she's buckled down and she's really wants to understand the information and she's taking it in and wouldn't you know it, she's getting phenomenal results still. She's keeping that training going. She's keeping that consistency going, reinforcing good stuff. Like it brings a smile to my face. It really does. And and the dog is happier and healthier because of it. And I just, I, you know, I, I really thank clients who do their homework, who do their jobs, because that's why, that's why I like to do what I want to, what I do. You know, that's why I like to do what I do, because I like facilitating that change. You know, seeing that change in a dog and then seeing the reaction out of the owner when they see the change in the dog, it's just, it's, it's everything. It's such a good feeling. 
Um, and it brings me a lot of happiness to be able to create a more cohesive relationship and bond between owner and dog. Uh, even today, I give another another great shout out. I got a, got a lot of really good clients going right now, and people really working hard. And you know, we had us we'd had a session today. And then we'd had a session previous a couple days ago, and things weren't quite going right where they needed to be. We were a couple sessions into our in-home training, a few in, and you know we had to have a little chat. Where I said, "Look, guys, you know you're not you're not really committing. You're not really doing this. You're not we're not doing that." Hey, I asked you to have this ready at this session. It's not right. Well, it's not ready. It's not here. Or maybe we're not doing our homework. You know, we had to have that little talk, that little honest chat. And wouldn't you know it? Today at the session, it was a different dog. Flat out told her. I said, "I can't even I." <laughs> I can't criticize your walk at all. This is phenomenal. It looks perfect. It's beautiful. That was awesome. It was so cool to see that change. And guys, did you hear what I said? Just a couple days ago, that was not the case. Within a few days, like 180 in the behavior. We were working the recall today. He was doing all the dog was doing awesome on the recall. Had him with another kind of feisty dog and he was ignoring the feisty, interested at first, but we got him redirecting away from it without a problem. He started running over to them, coming to them. It was awesome. And I love the clients that commit because again, why? It takes a village. You know what? Her husband had been out of town for a little bit, got back in. She got him on board. He was doing his work too, his homework as well. And amazing results happen. Amazing results happen when you train your dog as a family. When you when it doing you know, when you bring the village together, and you commit to training, you can get such quick results with most dogs. Okay, now it's not every dog. This is this is like an eleven month old puppy, and granted, he had his issues. <laughs> he was not perfect when we started. Um, but we're not talking a dog with severe anxiety problems or anything like that. That that takes a little longer. But again, I, I really just want to. Say thank you. Honestly, that's really what it is. I want to thank my clients who commit themselves, who do their homework, who, as I jokingly always say to my clients, lack of a better phrase, you do what I tell you to do. <laughs> and when you do, you get great results because this isn't this isn't magic, guys. This is this is science. This is stuff based on psychology. So when I hand my clients this information, they commit together as a family, right? They commit together as a family, they create consistency, and they get out there and train their dog. Man, amazing things can happen. Your dog can be trained. <laughs> so think about that. It's a family affair. Have everybody do their part. We need everybody on board. And the amazing thing is, is if you live in a household with multiple people, you can cut your training time in half because everybody can commit a little piece here, a little piece there. And of course, your dog's going to even learn better when we can break down that information and training for them and give a little piece here, a little piece there. So consistency takes a village. Don't forget to use your kids. <laughs> they need to be a part of the training process. They need to be walking the dogs, feeding the dogs, creating structure and playtime. They can be teaching them fun tricks. There's all kinds of things that your kids can be committing to and helping with the training. So if everybody commits just a little bit, it adds up to a lot. The difference in a household, guys, the difference in a household where a family and everybody that's everybody that's there and involved in that dog's life, the difference with a household that commits versus a household that doesn't, night and day, totally different. So get everybody on the same page. Commit to your dog, commit to your family, and you can make amazing behavioral changes in your dog. Next up on Speak Dogcast, it's our Breed of the Week. This week's Breed of the Week is the Siberian Husky. 
Now, Huskies are a member of the working group. Males weigh in from 45 to 60 pounds, with females coming in 35 to 50 pounds. Dignified, friendly, alert, and eager to work, the Siberian Husky was originally bred as a sled dog, pulling loads across vast distances in the cold tundra. These guys are quick and nimble on their feet and have boundless energy. Now, this breed is not for the first-time dog owner. No, they're not the easiest dog to train, and their will to work and, and have independent tendencies, well, it can make training more difficult, and again, it's just not for the novice dog owner or handler. However, when they are well-trained, Huskies can be great with kids, other dogs, and people, and they really don't necessarily make the best watchdogs because of that. One attractive feature of the Husky is their natural cleanliness, leading to minimal dog smells, and sometimes this quality, along with the Husky's natural beauty, can attract the wrong owners. So as always, be sure you know the breed's requirements and that you have the ability to fulfill them properly. Huskies can become very destructive if left to their own devices. They'll dig, shred, and destroy, so proper exercise, training, and stimulation is a must, but these guys can be very affectionate. Now, they're a relatively healthy breed. They can actually live to be 12 to 14 years, but they are prone to hip dysplasia. The origins of the Siberian Husky can most likely be traced back and connected to the Chukchi, a nomadic tribe in Siberia. These tribes bred the dogs to be a medium-sized dog and have that thick coat to help them deal with those harsh winters. They were developed into a sled dog capable of going vast distances while not exerting a lot of energy. Being so isolated from the rest of the world, this allowed the Chukchi to keep their genetic lines pure in their dogs. And, you know, genetic tests and studies, they've actually shown that the Huskies are one of the oldest breeds in the world. The popularity of the Husky grew in the early 1900s when they started winning sled races. But there was one event that happened that skyrocketed the Husky to fame. In 1925, a man by the name of Leonard Sapala, a legendary musher, led a pack of Siberian Huskies across 658 miles in only five and a half days. Now, he accomplished this feat in order to deliver life-saving serum to Nome, Alaska. There had been an epidemic of diphtheria that had broken out, and the story of the serum run, as it was being called in the papers, captivated the attention of people around the world. The story became such an interest to the public that Sapala's lead dog named Balto has a statue dedicated to him in New York City's Central Park. Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and more. For more information, check out our website, www.thenatureoftraining.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Potts. Located in Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast and North Palm Beach County. The Nature of Training, helping you achieve success with your pet. Speak Dogcast, it's all about the importance of focus.
Now, I've been lucky enough to train a wide variety of different animals, dogs, cats, birds, uh, primates, a bunch of different things. And, you know, it's funny, I tell people, if I could only give you two pieces of advice, two phrases, two little sentences on working with any animal on this planet, if I, only, if I had to sum it up with two things, the first thing would be own it. Yeah, own it. Confidence. Act like you've done it a thousand times before. Confidence will get you pretty far. I've talked about this previously. Own it, right? Fake it till you make it. Um, <laughs> you have to have confidence, so own it. Okay, that's the first thing. And the second thing is knowing where that animal's focus is and having the ability to guide and direct it or manipulate it, okay? Focus and owning it. Those are the two things that'll get you pretty darn far in animal training, okay? Uh, dogs, cat, cat, doesn't matter. Any animal, really. Now, um, it, working with something like a dog, it's pretty easy to to work with their focus and manipulate and know where it is and see it. They're very expressive with their faces, and uh, it's easy to start seeing and recognizing their body language and what that tells us, and and it makes it easier to understand their focus and work with it. But when you work with more complicated animals, uh, you know, I, I personally think one of the best ways to get really good at animal training and especially timing is to work with birds. Yeah, birds. Even something as simple as a pigeon. It's fascinating working with pigeons, getting them to fly in a flock and things like that. It really can hone in your training skills working with something as simplistic as that. Or you go to the other side of them working with something like a macaw or a crow even, right? Crows, one of the smartest animals on the planet. Their processing capabilities are insane. You know, they, they did a study and it's kind of off the top of my head. They did this really cool study where I don't remember what university it was, but they had a crow that had to do this puzzle. And it wasn't just like a puzzle fitting pieces together. No, this was like a... 12 to 14 steps, something like that process, where not only did it have to do this one step, and it had, it had to complete each step in sequence. So it couldn't jump to step four. It had to do step one, two, and three first. And little things, like once it got to step seven, it had to utilize something from step four in order to complete step seven. So really, when you think about it, the processing capabilities of working with an animal like that are just insane. Like, that's crazy, right? When you really think. So it was really fascinating and interesting to watch this crow go through the motion so strategically, logically, well thought out, really cool stuff. But the point is, the only way to get that crow to do that, focus. Knowing where their focus is, and being able to guide and direct it. And it's no different when we're working with, you know, like I said, something more intelligent on, the, on that side of the spectrum or just your dog, okay? So knowing where focus is, is everything, 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 and being able to guide and direct it. Now, every animal's focus works a little differently, right? Dogs, we have actually bred to to look to us and, you know, um, it's it's sort of it was sort of it is it's genetically built in. And I don't know if I I don't know if I've mentioned this example before. Uh, that that again another study, and I'm going to talk about this real quick and say how this this study was set up because this is really neat too. And this was uh, applies directly to to dogs and canines and um, wolves as well because the wolf there was a wolf done in the study. Okay, so here's here's the study. Uh, picture a metal wire crate, right? Metal wire crate. And in this metal wire crate, there's a two by four plank, right? Piece of wood. And attached to this wood is a rope. And the rope is fed through the crate. And the two by four is sitting, what? About maybe a fourth of the way into the crate. So if the crate door is shut, 
you can't access the 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 piece of wood, right? It's it's in there. And they put a treat. The the people in the study put a treat on the two by four. And so simply put, if the dog paws at the rope that's through the crate, it will actually bring the two by four closer to the edge of the crate. So therefore they can get the treat. Okay. So what they do is they have this crate set up in a room and they bring a dog into the room and the person will take the dog and close the door behind them. Now, already in the room is a second person. This person is standing in the corner. They don't have food. They don't have treats. They ignore the dog. They pretend like they don't exist. Okay. Now they do the study with a dog and with a wolf and both studies are set up the exact same way. Treat on two by four rope crates closed. Only way to get that two by four with the treat on it close to, to the only, excuse me, only way to get the treat on the two by four is for the dog to paw or the wolf to paw at that rope, bring the two by four closer. They get the treat. Now, first time around the wolf and the dog, they figure it out pretty darn quickly, right? Now keep in mind, remember there's a person standing in the corner, but they're not doing anything. They're just standing there. Both the dog and the wolf figured out the first time. Okay. No problem. Right now, second time around, they take the two by four and they bolt it into the crate. So this time, no matter how much the wolf or the dog paws at that rope, no matter how much they try to go for that treat, that two by four is not moving. Right. And that treat's not going anywhere and they can't access the treat in the crate. So here's the fascinating part of the study guys. When they give the wolf this option, the wolf will sit there and paw at the crate and paw at the rope and, you know, go sit there for, I think it, they said it was over a half an hour, 45 minutes. It will be incessant about trying to get to that food. It will not stop and it won't for a second. It will not for a second look at the person for any help. Okay. Now the dog, on the other hand, the domesticated dog, they'll spend roughly 30 seconds, 45 seconds trying to get the treat. And after they realize they can't, do you know what they do? They go over to the human, sit down and look up at them for help. This person hasn't interacted with them at all, hasn't given them affection, doesn't know the dog. And the dog still goes over to the person to look for help. So what's fascinating about this study is it tells us that we have genetically built that into a dog. How cool is that? <laughs> I mean, really, that is incredibly fascinating that through the process of eugenics and breeding and selective breeding over thousands and thousands of years, we domesticated a wolf to the point that they look to us as their pack for help. That's so cool. Whereas we can take the wild wolf and clearly see this wild non-domesticated animal has no interest in the person doesn't think for a second, oh, this person could help me, <laughs> right? So really fascinating stuff. And it's also to the point that we have to know where their focus is. That's why, that is why a dog is easy, relatively easy, depending on the breed and what they've been through. Uh, but for the most part on the whole, that's why dogs are easy to train because we built it into them to want to listen to us to want to be a part of our lives, to want to please us. We've, uh, you know, they supposedly, I mean, granted, you know, reading, reading dogs' brainwaves, we could still argue or not, is not a definitive science yet. Um, but hey, I, think, I think it's pretty definitive when, when we start making correlations and things, but hey, you know. <laughs> uh, but they've done studies where they measure brainwaves, brain activity of dogs when we give them affection, okay? When we give them affection. And the serotonin levels in the brain 
match that of a human being. The brain activity almost looks similar, uh, almost looks the same when a human gives a dog affection and vice versa. It's really kind of cool. So we do have this kind of genetic built-in thing to be the focus of a dog, to be the focal point. So it makes it easier to be to be able to manipulate and work with that focus. Okay. So so okay, that's that's my little side note on some interesting facts on why dogs do focus on us so well, why we can control and manipulate their attention, their focus easier than let's say a domesticated cat <laughs> or a bird, or, because we haven't genetically um, taken the time to selectively breed that into them. Okay. So getting back to it. Focus is very, very important, guys. Very, very important. And you know, when I talk about things like the walk, what is the walk all about? It's all about focus. Walks are 85% mental, 15% physical. You've heard me say it before, right? And what is that 85? So what does that mean? What is 85% mental? That's focus. Okay. Look, um, you know, I'll have clients who go, go for decent walks with their dogs. You know, when I first start working with them, the walks aren't terrible, but as I say to my clients all the time, I'm nitpicky. <laughs> I have high expectations for the walk. I have certain criteria that needs to be met to make it a proper walk. And you will notice such a difference when you create focus on the walk. When the walk stops becoming about, let me stop every five seconds and pee on everything and starts becoming more of a mission and a focal point. Okay. Um, you know, Dogs get kind of stuck in these little habitual routines to a point that it's actually not so great. Okay, they 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 get stuck in these little um, when it, I, I I say I say when a dog runs through the motions of the day, right? They're just running through the motions. They're not thinking about what they're doing. They get into autopilot mode, and a lot of times dogs like that get themselves into trouble. It's very common that those are the dogs that have the anxiety issues, the aggressive tendency issues thing, because they get into such an autopilot mode. They're not thinking, there's no focus, there's no control. Okay. They get so stuck on it. I call it like the race car on a racetrack. We should be going 175 miles an hour. We're going 500 miles an hour. And when that brain gets going so darn fast, they can't even see the world going on around them. There's no focus. There's no control. You're not mentally doing anything to stimulate them. They're just running through the motions, okay? So it's my job as the owner to redirect that focus, control that focus, and this is going you know, going back to the metaphor of the racetrack, we need to put some speed bumps in that racetrack and slow that brain down. Creating focus can slow a dog's brain down, and when a dog starts thinking about what they're doing, they get into a lot less trouble, okay? And when they think about what they're doing, we've created focus. It's it's really, I have another client recently where we're doing in-home training and, you know, he had a bad experience. The dog did have a bad experience, not in control, you know, not in the owner's control. And it sent him down a bad path. And especially when there's a traumatizing experience for a dog, even human beings, right? When there's a traumatizing experience, it can kind of send you into that rut, into that autopilot mode where you, you the, the dog gets stuck in this zone of even though the behaviors they're exhibiting are not healthy, in their brain, they think it works really well for them. And so that focus gets so honed in on, I need to do this obsessive behavior because it keeps me safe. And it, 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 the, the traumatizing experience doesn't repeat itself when I when I do this obsessive behavior. So I'm going to keep doing this obsessive behavior. And then they get into it so fast that they just keep going and going. And, going, and then we have an anxious dog. Okay. So by creating focus, by redirecting their focus and making sure you have the ability to guide and direct and control it, you can actually take their worry away. 
That's kind of what I compare. A dog who's always looking over their shoulder, maybe, maybe because they did get attacked, maybe because there was some experience like that. A dog who's always looking over their shoulder, it's not good. They're always looking for trouble. And if you're always looking for trouble, <laughs> you're going to find it. Um, so it's my job to control that focus and tell them, hey, don't worry about that. No, don't worry about that. When a dog isn't focused on the walk, I have to redirect the focus. And I kind of look at it like I'm saying, hey, don't worry about that. I'll get that. Don't worry about that. I'll let you know if you need to worry. <laughs> okay. That's how I prefer your dog to be. If you start getting nervous, trust me, your dog will know it. They'll pick up on it. Your dog shouldn't be getting nervous before you are, though. That's not good. That's not good. Because then they make a bad decision, okay? And that means we don't have their focus. We don't have the ability to guide and direct their focus. This is why having focus is so important. This is why creating focus on a walk is so important. Because if we don't have that focus to begin with, it can lead to bad things. And I know some people just go, well, so what, David? Like, he's not paying attention on the walk. Who cares? Isn't it his fun time? You need to go back. Listen to my segment on walking your dog because you'll hear why it's important to walk your dog properly. I do believe that's episode number two, how to walk your dog. You can check it out. Um, but the how and why, guys, really important to understand. It's not just a walk. A walk isn't just a walk. A walk has to be a mission. It has to be a pack walk. It has to be mentally engaging and creating focus for them, or it's just not going to do anything. Okay. So focus. It's all about focus. It's very important that you know where your dog's brain is. I've said it before. Dogs can only focus on one thing at a time, literally. Literally. One thing at a time. That's it. So if I am not able to control and guide that focus, they're going to focus on something and they're going to focus really hard. But if you're constantly redirecting and, and making sure that focus is calm and relaxed, then you're controlling the focus and they're not going to look for trouble. And then you won't have trouble. Okay. So I, I try to stress it all the time. It's, I think, the number one thing when it comes to animal training, dogs, cats, birds, I don't care what animal you're working with, know where your animal's focus is and have the ability to guide and direct it. The answer to today's trivia question, what was the first group of dogs that were registered to the AKC? It's the sporting group. Yes, the nine original character breeds of the AKC, they were recognized way back in 1878, and they were the Pointer, the Chesapeake Bay Retriever, the Sussex Spaniel, the Cocker Spaniel, the Clumber Spaniel, Irish Water Spaniel, the Irish Setter, the Gordon Setter, and the English Setter. Next on Speak Dogcast, it's our listener Q&A. The first question today comes from Megan from Columbia, South Carolina. Megan asks, is there ever a time where it's okay to leave my dog in the car? Well, you know, Megan, I live in Florida and really, no, <laughs> for us, there isn't a good time to leave a dog in a car. Now, with that said, um, there are new features on vehicles. I mean, I know Tesla, that made the news. Uh, gosh, that was probably already two years ago, maybe, uh, where they have a dog feature. And it's it's a setting you can put on. I mean, I, I personally, I don't have a Tesla, uh, but you, it's a setting you can set on the car, which essentially tells the car to stay running with the AC because you have a dog inside the car and it'll know it. Now, that feature malfunctioned, and if I remember correctly, it was turning the heat on, I think, in the car instead, which, uh, not good. 
Um, so, you know, those features can be tricky and, it, it, you know, it's risky. And look, myself, I bring dogs on appointments all the time and I work 365. I don't take summers off here. So when it gets really hot, I have to keep the car running. And I do have a, a ability to lock my car while keeping the car running and there's no way the car will shut off or anything like that. At the same time, you know, knock on wood, hey, no, little knock there. Um, God forbid my AC malfunctions or breaks and it starts blowing hot air. Ugh, geez, there's always that risk. Now, I always like to run back to the car often to make sure I'm checking on them, make sure they're okay, keeping an eye out. So I'm never very far away when I do that. I don't just go in somewhere and leave for an hour or two. I'm always checking on the dogs. I'm in people's homes. We're usually working outside and the car's running and I'm right there. Um, so there are some safe ways to set it up, but to leave your dog in a car unattended, not running, no, that's really not safe. That can be very dangerous. A car exposed in the sun, guys, can get so hot so quickly, even in the northern, you know, even you, you northerners up there, uh, cars can still get so hot sitting in the sun. Now, if your car is in a nice extra shaded area, again, it's a cool, really cool day and you leave the windows cracked so there's a nice breeze, sure. Uh, that might be a safe way to do it. But even then, shade doesn't stick around forever. If you've got a tree over your car, the sun moves. Uh, so that's just something you really need to take into consideration. So maybe leaving them in there for a few minutes on a cool day, windows cracked, you're in the shade, you're taking into consideration all those variables to do it in a safe way in very small amount of time then sure, that that might be the exception. But really, no, we don't really want to leave dogs in the car if we can help it. Uh, if we, if you know, if you can't keep that AC running, and of course keep the doors locked, and do it in a safe way. And as you might have heard from, <laughs> I think that was last episode I talked about. Silly me left the car running and ran in to get a pickup a dog. You can hear that story. Uh, go back and listen to that episode and hear what happened. A little bit of craziness, <laughs> but again. It's not always not very safe necessarily to leave your, leave your dog in a car, but if you're going to, make sure you're thinking about shade, AC, temperature outside, sun, how long you're going to be inside. Take all those things into consideration. Please, please, please be smart about this. Please don't leave your dogs in the car unattended. Now, another thing, if you do have a feature to leave the AC running, I do want to make a side note, actually. If you do have a feature that leaves the AC running or something like that, might be a smart idea to put a note in the window <laughs> and say, hey, my dog is cool. Doors are locked. AC's running. He's all right. Uh, because, you know, there are some states and cities where rules are different and leaving your dog in a car unattended like that, you know, hey, uh, make sure you're aware of those rules and laws. So throwing that out there. Next question. This comes from Kara in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Kara says, uh, Kara says, I just got a puppy. What toy should I buy and where should I get them? Now, Kara, I've actually talked a couple times about puppies, of course, because how could we not, <laughs> right? And you can go back to episode 19 and you can check out a segment I do on puppy supplies. And I talk a little more about that, uh, as well as you can check out episode six titled Getting a New Puppy. A lot of good information in there. But what I will say is you do want to be mindful of your dog's chewing habits. That's the first thing. Make sure you're not getting toys that your dog can destroy, eat, digest. That can be bad stuff and lead to some, uh, some medical issues. So you want to be careful in that regard. Now, of course, when they're teething, when they're really young, you want to make sure you're not getting toys that are too hard, that they're going to hurt their little baby puppy teeth, making sure you're getting the appropriate toys at the appropriate age. Uh, but there are a lot of good do dog toys out there. Some of my favorites are the 
toys that don't have stuffing, the toys without stuffing in them. That way you can also ensure your puppy's not eating all that stuffing. Uh, things you want to avoid, kind of giving you the nutshell version of the toys here, but things you want to avoid, raw hides. Don't get your puppy raw hides. They're bad stuff. Avoid them at all costs. A lot of other good chewing toys, once they get a little older, they start getting those adult teeth in. We can do antlers. We can do bully sticks. We can do all different kinds of things that are more on the natural side. I like to buy my toys at places like Home Goods, things like that. I go through a lot of dog toys, guys. <laughs> a lot of dog toys in this household. So uh, TJ Maxx, Home Goods, those are really good places. And of course, even the big box stores, they do a lot of great sales. Uh, you know, so keep keep an eye out for that. Think of think about your dog's chewing habits. Be mindful and know what your dog does with those toys, and that will help guide you to buying the correct and more appropriate toys for your puppy. That'll wrap up the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining in. Appreciate all the support. And if you guys have any questions about dog training, dogs in general, email me, questions at speakadogcast.com. In the meantime, have a wonderful week. And don't forget, get out there and walk your dog. Thank you.